Section 27 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Sartor. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. Oliver Goldsmith, Part 2. In the village green is the original spreading hawthorn tree, all enclosed in a stone wall to preserve it, and on the wall is a sign requesting you not to break off branches. Around the trees are seats. I sat there one evening with talking age and whispering lovers. The mirth that night was of a quiet sort, and I listened to an old man who recited all the desert village to the little group that was present. It cost me sixpence, but was cheap for the money, for the brogue was very choice. I was the only stranger present, and quickly guessed that the entertainment was for my sole benefit, as I saw that I was being furtively watched to see how I took my medicine. A young fellow sitting near me offered a little goldsmith information. Then a woman on the other side did the same, and the old man who had recited suggested that we go over and see the alehouse, where the justly celebrated Dr. Goldsmith so often played his harp so feelingly. So we adjourned to the three jolly pigeons, a dozen of us, including the lovers, whom I personally invited. And did Oliver Goldsmith really play his harp in this very room? I asked. Ay, indeed he did, your honour, and if ye don't believe it, ye can sit in the same chair that was his. So they led me to the big chair that stood on a little raised platform, and I sat in the great oaken seat, which was surely made before Goldsmith was born. Then we all took ale, at my expense. The lovers sat in one corner, drinking from one glass, and very particular to drink from the same side and giggling to themselves. The old man wanted to again recite the deserted village, but was forcibly restrained, and instead, by invitation of himself, the landlord sang a song composed by Goldsmith, but which I have failed to find in Goldsmith's works, entitled, When Ireland is Free. There were thirteen stanzas in this song, and a chorus and refrain, in which the words of the title are repeated. After each stanza, we all came in strong on the chorus, keeping time by tapping our glasses on the tables. Then we all drank perdition to English landlords, had our glasses refilled, and I was called on for a speech. I responded in a few words that were loudly cheered, and the very good health of the American nobleman was drunk with much fervour. The Three Jolly Pigeons is arranged exactly to the letter. The whitewashed walls, the nicely sanded floor, the varnished clock that clicked behind the door, the chest contrived a doubly debt to pay, a bed by night, a chest of drawers by day, the pictures placed for ornament and use, the twelve good rules, the royal game of goose. 
and behold, there on the wall behind the big oak chair are the twelve good rules. The next morning I saw the modern mansion of the village preacher, whose house was known to all the vagrant train, then the little stone church, and beyond I came to the blossoming firs, unprofitable gay, where the village master taught his little school. A bright young woman teaches there now, and it is certain that she can write and cipher too, for I saw sums on the blackboard, and I also saw where she had written some very pretty mottoes on the wall with coloured chalk, a thing I am sure that Paddy Byrne never thought to do. Below the schoolhouse is a pretty little stream that dances over pebbles and untiringly turns the wheel in the old mill, and not far away I saw the round top of Knockrue Hill, where Goldsmith said he would rather sit with a book in hand than mingle with the throng at the court of royalty. Goldsmith's verse is all clean, sweet and wholesome, and I do not wonder that he was everywhere a favourite with women. This was true in his very babyhood, for he was the pet of several good old dames, one of whom taught him to count by using cards as object lessons. He proudly said that when he was three years of age, he could pick out the ten-spot. This love of pasteboard was not exactly an advantage, for when he was sixteen he went to Dublin to attend college, and carried fifty pounds and a deck of cards in his pocket. The first day in Dublin he met a man who thought he knew more about cards than Oliver did, and the man did. In three days Oliver arrived back in Sweet Auburn, penniless, but wonderfully glad to get home and everybody glad to see him. It seemed as if I'd been away a year, he said. But in a few weeks he started out with no baggage but a harp, and he played in the villages and the inns, and sometimes at the homes of the rich, and his melodies won all hearts. The author of Vanity Fair says, You come hot and tired from the day's battle, and this sweet minstrel sings to you, who could harm the kind vagrant harper? Whom did he ever hurt? He carries no weapon, only the harp on which he plays to you, and with which he delights great and humble, young and old, the captains in the tent, or the soldiers round the fire, or the women and children in the villages, at whose porches he stops and sings his simple songs of love and beauty. When Goldsmith arrived in London in 1756, he was ragged, penniless, friendless, and forlorn. In the country he could always make his way, but the city to him was new and strange. For several days he begged a crust here and there, sleeping in the doorways at night and dreaming of the flowery wealth of gentle Lissoy, where even the poorest had enough to eat and a warm place to huddle when the sun went down. He at length found work as a clerk or porter in a chemist's shop, where he remained until he got money enough to buy a velvet coat and a ruffled shirt, and then he moved to the bankside and hung out a surgeon's sign. The neighbours thought the little doctor funny, 
and the women would call to him out of the second-story window that it was a fine day, but when they were ill they sent for someone else to attend them. Goldsmith was twenty-eight, and the thought that he could make a living with his pen had never come to him. Yet he loved books, and he would loiter about bookshops, pricing first editions and talking poetry to the patrons. He chanced in this way to meet Samuel Richardson, who, because he wrote the first English romance, has earned the title of Father of Lies. In order to get a very necessary loaf of bread, Dr. Goldsmith asked Richardson to let him read proof. So Richardson gave him employment, and in correcting proof, the discovery was made that the Irish doctor could turn a sentence too. He became affected with literary eczema, and wrote a tragedy, which he read to Richardson and a few assembled friends. They voted it, Vile, damnition, vile. But one man thought it wasn't so bad as it might be, and this man found a market for some of the little doctor's book reviews, but the tragedy was fed to the fireplace. With the money for his book reviews, the doctor bought goose quills and ink, and inspiration in bottles. Grub Street dropped in. Shabby, seedy, empty of pocket but full of hope, and little suppers were given in dingy coffee-houses, where success to English letters was drunk. Then we find Goldsmith making a bold stand for reform. He hired out to write magazine articles by the day, going to work in the morning when the bell rang, an hour off at noon, and then at it again until nightfall. Mr. Griffiths, publisher of the Monthly Review, was his employer, and in order to hold his newly captured prize, the publisher boarded the pockmarked Irishman in his own house. Mrs. Griffiths looked after him closely, spurring him on when he lagged, correcting his copy, striking out such portions as showed too much genius, and inserting a word here and there in order to make a purely neutral decoction, which it seems is what magazine readers have always desired. Occasionally these articles were duly fathered by great men, as this gave them the required specific gravity. It is said that even in our day there are editors who employ convict labor in this way. But I am sure that this is not so, for we live in an age of competition, and it is just as cheap to hire the great men to supply twaddle direct as it is to employ foreign paupers to turn it out with the extra expense of elderly women to revise. After working in the Griffith Literary Mill for five months, Goldsmith scaled the barricade one dark night, leaving behind, pasted on the wall, a ballad not only to Mrs. Griffith's eyebrow, but to her wig as well. Soon after this, when Goldsmith was thirty years of age, his first book, Inquiry into the Present State of Polite Learning in Europe, was published. It brought him a little money and tuppence worth of fame, so he took better lodgings in Green Arbor Court, proposing to do great things. Half a century after the death of Goldsmith, Irving visited Green Arbor Court. At length we came upon Fleet Market, 
and traversing it, turned up a narrow street to the bottom of a long, steep flight of stone steps called breakneck stairs. These led to Green Arbor Court, and down them Goldsmith many a time risked his neck. When we entered the court I could not but smile to think in what, out of the way, corners, genius produces her bantlings. The court I found to be a small square surrounded by tall, miserable houses, with old garments and frippery fluttering from every window. It appeared to be a region of washerwomen, and lines were stretched about the square on which clothes were dangling to dry. Poor Goldsmith! What a time he must have had of it! With his quiet disposition and nervous habits, penned up in this den of noise and vulgarity. One can imagine Goldsmith running the whole gamut of possible jokes on breakneck stairs, and Green Arbor Court, which, by the way, was never green, and where there was no arbor. "'I've been admitted to court, gentlemen,' said Goldsmith proudly, one day at the Mitre Tavern. "'Ah, yes, doctor, we know.' Green Arbor Court, and any man who has climbed breakneck stairs has surely achieved, said Tom Davies. In 1760, Goldsmith moved to Number 6 Wine Office Court, where he wrote the Vicar of Wakefield. Boswell reports Dr. Johnson's account of visiting him there. I received one morning a message from poor Goldsmith, that he was in great distress, and, as it was not in his power to come to me, begging that I would come to him as soon as possible, I sent him a guinea and promised to come to him directly. I accordingly went to him as soon as I was dressed, and found that his landlady had arrested him for his rent, at which he was in a violent passion. I perceived that he had already changed my guinea, and had half a bottle of Madeira and a glass before him. I put the cork in the bottle, desired he would be calm, and began to talk to him of the means by which he might be extricated. He then told me he had a novel ready for the press, which he produced for me. I looked into it and saw its merits, told the landlady I would soon return, and having gone to a bookseller, sold it for sixty pounds. I brought Goldsmith the money, and he discharged the rent, not without rating his landlady for having used him so ill. For the play of The Good-Natured Man, Goldsmith received five hundred pounds, and he immediately expended four hundred in mahogany furniture, easy chairs, lace curtains, and Wilton carpets. Then he called in his friends. This was at number two Brick Court, Middle Temple. Blackstone had chambers just below, and was working as hard over his commentaries as many a lawyer's clerk has done since. He complained of the abominable noise and racket of those fellows upstairs, but was asked to come in and listen to wit while he had the chance. I believe the bailiffs eventually captured the mahogany furniture, but Goldsmith held the quarters, they are today in good repair, and the people who occupy the house are very courteous, and obligingly show the rooms to the curious, 
no attempt at a museum is made, but there are to be seen various articles which belonged to Goldsmith, and a collection of portraits that are interesting. When The Traveller was published, Goldsmith's fame was made secure. As long as he wrote plays, reviews, history, and criticism, he was working for hire. People said it was clever, brilliant, and all that, but their hearts were not won until the poet had poured out his soul to his brother in that gentlest of all sweet rhymes. I pitied the man who can read the opening lines of The Traveller without a misty something coming over his vision. Wherever I roam, whatever realms I see, my heart untravelled fondly turns to thee. Still to my brother turns with ceaseless pain, and drags at each remove a lengthening chain. This is the earliest English poem which I can recall that makes use of our American Indian names. Where wild Oswego spreads her swamps around, and Niagara stuns with thundering sound. Indeed, we came near having Goldsmith for an adopted citizen. According to his own report, he once secured passage to Boston, and after carrying his baggage aboard the ship, he went back to town to say a last hurried word of farewell to a fair lady. And when he got back to the dock, the ship had sailed away with his luggage. His earnest wish was to spend his last days in sweet Auburn. In all my wanderings round this world of care, in all my griefs, and God has given my share, I still had hopes my latest hours to crown, amidst those humble bowers to lay me down, to husband out life's taper at its close, and keep the flame from wasting by repose. I still had hopes, for pride attends us still, amidst the swains to show my book-learned skill, around my fire and evening group, to draw, and tell of all I felt, and all I saw, and as a hare, whom hounds and horns pursue, pants to the place from whence at first she flew. I still had hopes, my long vexations past, here to return, and die at home at last. But he never saw Ireland, after he left it in 1754. He died in London in 1774, aged 46, on the plain little monument in Temple Church where he was buried, are only these words. Here lies Oliver Goldsmith. Hawkins once called on the Earl of Northumberland, and found Goldsmith waiting in an outer room, having come in response to an invitation from the nobleman. Hawkins, having finished his business, waited until Goldsmith came out, as he had a curiosity to know why the Earl had sent for him. "'Well,' 
said Hawkins. What did he say to you? His lordship told me that he had read The Traveller, and that he was pleased with it, and that inasmuch as he was soon to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and knowing I was an Irishman, asked what he could do for me. And what did you tell him? inquired the eager Hawkins. Why, there was nothing for me to say, but that I was glad he liked my poem, and that I had a brother in Ireland, a clergyman, who stood in need of help. Enough! cried Hawkins, and left him. To Hawkins himself are we indebted for the incident, and after relating it, Hawkins adds, And thus did this idiot in the affairs of the world trifle with his fortunes. Let him who wishes preach a sermon on this story. But there you have it, a brother in Ireland who needs help. The brother in London, the brother in America, the brother in Ireland who needs help. All men were his brothers, and those who needed help were first in his mind. Dear little Dr. Goldsmith, you were not a hustler, but when I get to the spirit world, I'll surely hunt you up. End of Oliver Goldsmith, Part 2 Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland